Welcome to episode number 120 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I'm a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineering Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers. And through this podcast, myself and my co-host, Chris Knutson, try to bring you information that can help you succeed in every episode. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. At the Engineering Management Institute, we believe that in order to be the best civil engineer you can be, you must consistently get better, get better at your craft, your people skills, and as a leader. And that's why we publish this free podcast to help you do just that. In this episode, you're going to hear interviews from my recent visit to the American Society of Civil Engineers Structural Engineering Institute Structures Congress. More about that in a minute. These will be some technical related, but some professional development related, and I think you're going to really enjoy them. But before we get started, this is a free show, and our sponsors help us to keep it free. So I ask you to please support them. Now I'd like to recognize our sponsors for this episode. First, PPI, by asking you, are you ready to advance in your career and get your civil engineering license? Listen up later on in this podcast as I'll be sharing info on where to find practical tips and time-tested resources for your civil engineering licensure exam. Plus, I'll share my recommendations on the best civil engineering prep courses so you can be fully prepared for exam day. Don't miss it. And we have a new sponsor on the Civil Engineering Podcast, Mazer Consulting. A big thank you to EMI's newest podcast sponsor, Mazer Consulting, a privately owned multidiscipline engineering firm with 950 employees in 32 offices nationwide and growing fast. Mazer Consulting's engineers, planners, surveyors, landscape architects, and environmental scientists provide professional services to a diverse client base across the public and private sectors. Headquartered in New Jersey with projects coast-to-coast, Mazer's offices are strategically positioned to provide comprehensive services to meet their clients' needs. Mazer Consulting is committed to the success of their clients and employees. I'll tell you more about our new sponsor, Mazer Consulting, a little bit later on in the episode. All right, so this is a fun episode. You're going to hear a couple of interviews. A couple will be related to some technical topics for structural engineering because that was the nature of the conference but some of them are related to personal development of these individuals. And you're also going to hear an excerpt from my session at the Structures Congress on effective communication, specifically me talking about responsiveness. There's a lot of good stuff in this episode. I was excited to do it. And I'm going to give you the quick backstory behind this because this is actually a two-part series with this episode on the Civil Engineering Podcast here and the second episode, which has already been published actually, on our newest podcast, the Structural Engineering Channel Podcast, which is a podcast that's going to focus a little bit more on technical items for structural engineers, along with some professional development topics as well. And so just to give you the backstory on this entire episode and the other podcast, firstly, I do a lot of stuff with ASCE. I write a column for them, Careers and Leadership. I keep in touch with them a lot. And they invited me to come and speak at this conference, the Structures Congress, which was in Orlando. They do it every year. It's part of their Structural Engineering Institute. It's the annual conference. A lot of energy, great conference. I was speaking initially, and then we decided to do a podcast episode there. And a big part of that was a big thank you to to CSI Computers and Structures, Inc. Ashraf Habibullah was the keynote speaker at the conference. He's a great speaker. He's interested in elevating the profession. 
And CSI really is, is recognized globally as the pioneering leader in software tools for structural and earthquake engineering. And they kind of sponsored our whole trip there. And they're also sponsoring our new podcast. So I wanted to give them a shout out. When I found out I was going there, I was excited to do this podcast. But what also had happened previously to that was a young engineer, a young structural engineer in California named Matthew Picardle had reached out to me a few months ago for some career coaching and advice. And I help a lot of younger engineers when I can. I worked with Matthew for a few coaching sessions. And one of the recommendations that I made to him was to get out there in the industry and get involved in associations. So he joined ASCE. He got very active. He actually won a scholarship to the same Structures Congress that I was attending. And I found that out. And I reached out to him before. And I said, I can't wait to actually meet you in person at the conference. So at the conference, we met in person. We spoke a little bit. He did an 80-20 video for us. He's actually featured on this podcast. You're going to hear him talk about how the networking has been really helpful for him. But while I was there, I started thinking that we need to have a a podcast just focused on structural engineering because there's so many interesting technical trends in the field and all kinds of new things going on. There was just a couple of articles in the New York Times about this concept of base isolation that they're using to design Apple's headquarters that they use to design it, which we have an episode on that podcast coming up on. And so, you know what? I was thinking about it. Matt recently started a YouTube channel to help uh, younger people learn about structural engineering. I said, maybe Matt is the person to co-host the podcast with me. And so I asked him at the conference, he agreed to do it. And now we have the Structural Engineering Channel podcast and Matthew and I are co-hosting and it's going very well. The reason I share that story with you is because number one, you never know what kind of connections you're going to make and you never know how the networking and relationship building is going to help you. So you always have to keep yourself open to opportunities. Once again, you're going to hear quite a few interviews in this episode. You're going to hear from Kevin LaMalva. Structural engineer will introduce in a moment. You're going to hear from Alexis Clark, who's been on the podcast in the past. She's with Healthy North America. You're going to hear from Matt about his networking efforts. And you're also going to hear from Dr. Elena Sutley, who's a civil engineer who went into become a professor, went into education. And so she has some interesting perspectives and she talks a little bit about community resilience, not just for structural engineering projects, but for all civil engineering projects. So with that, we're going to jump in here. Our first guest is Kevin LaMalva. He's a professional engineer. He has dual registration in both fire protection engineering and civil engineering and has worked at Simpson, Gumperts, and Hager since 2007. He's been referenced by the industry as a luminary and champion. He is past chair of the ASCE-SEI Fire Protection Committee and is a member of numerous industry committees that conduct research and develop standards for structural fire safety. He has been awarded the distinction of 2017 ENR Newsmaker for serving the best interest of the construction industry and the public. He gave us a great interview. And if you're interested in the, the sister episode to this that's been published already, just go to structuralengineeringchannel.com where you could subscribe to the new podcast. If you're a structural engineering professional, it may be very helpful for you. So without further ado, here's Kevin LaMalva. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Kevin, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. So we're here at the ASCE SCI Structures Congress in Orlando. And because we want to kind of give you a little bit of a peek into the structural engineering industry, maybe you are a structural engineer, maybe you're a civil engineer, you're not practicing instructors. One of the big things, Kevin, in structural engineering today is performance-based design. I keep hearing this term, but I'm not familiar with it. I'm sure not a lot of our listeners are not familiar with it, but I know you are. So Give us a little idea, what is performance-based design in the realm of structural engineering? Yeah, so performance-based design is sort of an overarching terminology for a different mindset in the way that the engineer undergoes their design. So instead of when you're faced with a problem, 
instead of running to the code and then looking up what to do and what calcs you should do, you think, okay, what is the end performance that we want? And it may be something that is more or perhaps a little less than in certain circumstances than what the code implicitly applies. Mm. So the building code has a lot of historical precedence and that precedence is based on experience and judgment. However, it may not apply equally to all buildings. So each building and its scenario is gonna be a little unique. And performance-based design allows you to consider what you're actually after and then design in a method that the structural engineer sees as the right path to go. And with that said, it's important to have some guidance what the structural engineer should be doing for that. So I specialize in fire. So we've tried to define uh, effectively bounds of what best practices in that area would be. But we don't define specific calculations that you must do. It's basically defining the end goal and then determining the scope of your analysis that is sufficient to meet that end goal. Hmm, that's very interesting. So as opposed to just designing every building based off of the same code, it's the idea of, you know, how do we ultimately want this structure to perform? What is the performance standards we're going for, or the goals? And then designing it around that because, quite frankly, every building's different, right? So Exactly. There could be, if you design them all in the same code, there could be waste, there could be extra stuff. We don't know exactly, but, you know, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But I see your point there is that if you're going to do performance-based design, it's really hard to quantify it or put any kind of guidelines around it because that would defeat the purpose of them just looking at the performance. So you try to come up with, I guess, best practices. Exactly. So we want to have, we want to instill trust that the structural engineer will know that the intended level of performance has been met based upon their expertise. So it allows, you know, there's a, a session tomorrow that was put together uh, by the Charles Pankow Foundation, and the title of that is Unleashing the Profession. So we want to unleash the talent of the profession to solve real-world problems because certain buildings face events that are very rare, but they can have, you know, great negative effects on society, but we don't necessarily design for those specifically. And that's a case where performance-based design really can be applied well. For example, you know, I always jump back to fire. You know, fire in a high-rise building can be a very high-consequence event. Sure. So the building code currently only regulates the travel distance to a stairwell. So if you're on the hundredth floor, what the building code effectively regulates is how long that distance can be on that floor. But the building code has an implicit assumption that once you get into that stairwell, you're as safe as if you are on the ground level, outside in the street. So the nice thing about performance-based design is it makes you think about the visceral aspects about what your design, how it affects society and the stakeholders. Mm. So if we were doing a performance-based design of a high-rise building, we would not make that implicit assumption that you are as safe in a stairwell on the 100th floor right. than if you are in the street. And we would design accordingly, and structural engineers have the talent to do that. Yeah. And that's what we're trying. You know, it, it's something that is, uh, is specialized, and it maybe venture a little beyond your comfort zone, but... What I see performance-based design providing 
is structures that are more resilient to a multitude of different hazards that are tailored to each unique structure and that also can benefit the stakeholders. Uh, there's times when unrealized economy can be proliferated. Right. That's why I'm a proponent of it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because basically what it sounds like to me, and again, I'm, I'm learning about it now here for the first time with you, but you know, structural engineers, of course, are talented, they're smart, and they have capabilities to go into a specific building and design it for exactly what the building needs. So the performance-based design allows them to really do that and figure out all the intricacies of that building as opposed to just saying, listen, here's the code, let's follow. Sure, yeah, and, and I don't want to knock the code too much because, right. again, it's there's tremendous amount of historical precedent. When I do co-consulting, it's mostly in the fire realm. Okay. And if you look at the building code, most of the code is actually about fire. So fire is a highly prescriptive discipline, and it's been so for many, many decades where it doesn't necessarily dictate a level of performance that it expects, but it says, thou shall not have more than 250 feet travel distance to a stairwell. Thou shall put this much insulation on the structure. Right. And the prescriptive method for structural fire protection is actually 100 years old. And as I talk about tomorrow, it really started in 1918, and it hasn't appreciably changed since. And structural fire protection has been missing a key ingredient for 100 years, in my opinion, and that is the participation of the structural engineer. Because the way that structural fire protection is now, if you read the code and understood it, may be similarly qualified as me about employing the requirements of the code because it basically dictates what you should do, as opposed to thinking about the intricacies of the building as well as the intended performance that you want from a structural perspective. Right. That's very interesting. So the one question I have for you is, this sounds great and exciting and excited to hear that you're working on this and with guidelines, et cetera. But one of my questions, just thinking as an engineer, licensed engineer, from a legal perspective is, okay, so now you design a building. You're not necessarily following the code strictly. You're basing it on the performance-based design. Mm -hmm. What are the ramifications there? Is SEI working to create some kind of best practice or guidelines so that, well, I guess the, the real question is like, in today's world, are you even allowed to use performance-based design? Is it something that they're using right now in practice? Yes, it's an area that, that I don't particularly practice in, okay. but performance-based seismic, there's many you know brilliant people here at this conference okay. that are pioneers of performance-based for seismic motion, ground motions. Okay. And it follows, basically what we're trying to do with fire is we're trying to follow in the footsteps of performance-based seismic because they, they're really successful because they are getting it employed in practice. And the question that you raise about the legal aspects is definitely a very good question. And it's something that, you know, we routinely struggle with. And my outlook on it is rather simple. You could say the same thing about designing a structure to withstand a certain hurricane or wind load or seismic. Right. It may be somewhat prescriptive, but uh, those aspects of structural design still require a tremendous amount of structural expertise that the building officials, due to the credentials of the structural engineer, have the faith that they did the right thing without being overly concerned about their practice. So I'm hoping that fire can be woven into the fabric of structural engineering in a similar way. I'm by no means an expert on this, but the beginnings of 
designs of structure for earthquakes, from what I understand, started with just prescribing a lateral load on the building, and then you would design accordingly. And again, that dramatically raised the level of safety for that type of load condition. But since then, there's, there's been a tremendous amount of work to refine and make that more specific to each individual building and performance-based seismic takes that to the next level. Just one last thing to kind of clarify everything and pull it together just so I'm clear, the listeners are clear. So if I'm gonna design the structural aspects of a building, let's say, in, in some state, I know they're all different, and I wanna use performance-based design, is it something that you would go to like the municipality and say, I'm gonna use performance-based design, and then like you said, the municipality will say, okay, we're comfortable with you and this project and we're gonna allow you to do that? Is that how you would approach it? Exactly. From my perspective, if you're practicing in performance-based design, your soft skills are just as important as your technical skills. So me standing here with you today, I actually treat as practice to mm -hmm. convey the intent and principles of it. Sure. Because the first step of any structural fire engineering design has to be an exploratory conversation with the building authority. So for one thing, we specifically wrote this into the ASC 7 standard that performance base for fire is elective per the jurisdiction. So okay. the jurisdiction, if you bring it up, they can just table it, you know, right off the bat. Right. If they're not, if they don't feel comfortable with it or they don't feel that they have the review capability. However, if they didn't have the review capability, they could always hire another structural engineering firm. And that's actually pretty common in performance-based design is to have a third-party peer review. So okay. basically to have an independent organization check all your calculations. The first phase of a performance-based design is that conversation. And if things go well, that conversation gets memorialized in what's called a design brief. So it basically lays out your whole intent is... It can be a difficult conversation because you're having a visceral discussion about performance expectations. Right. The town and has to, the municipality has to trust you to be able to use your judgment to design this thing. Exactly. So when you venture off into something that is not so conventional, those soft skills become very important. And again, I'm a, a student of the profession and I'm still learning those skills. Sure. But that is one thing that I put a lot of emphasis on my own education to be able to present things as clearly as possible and as honestly and, and with credibility behind it to point to standards. That's why I've put so much effort into, uh, you know, I've spent many, many weekends volunteering to write the manual practice, sure. for instance, things like that. And the reason that I want to do that is to bring a consensus together on what is best practice. And right. having SEI involved in that has been extremely important. So having that backing, going to a billing authority with that consensus sure. in hand can really enhance and complement the, the soft skills as yeah. well. Hmm, that's great. And, you know, what, what's interesting about it, Kevin, and I'm glad we had this conversation on the podcast because I could very easily see this idea of performance-based design going into other civil disciplines. Maybe, maybe it is already, but, you know, I practice in land development and I know, like in terms of stormwater designs and things of that nature, a lot of the stuff is way over-designed. And it's for good reason. It's because right now we have the regulations, which people have worked hard on and put in place, and it's the only thing we really have, right? So until people start to branch out and do different things like performance-based design, that's what you have to follow. But it does sound like performance-based design in the kind of customized world that we live in today has a lot of potential in other areas of engineering as well. Of and hopefully... You know, and like you said, it's great to have organizations like ASCE 
that put time, effort, and resources with volunteers like you into this mm. to get that backing so that when you do go to a municipality and say, hey, listen, we've got some talented engineers that can design this thing based on their experience, then when you have ASCE or some association behind you, then the municipality may be much more likely to engage in that conversation. Amen. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, so Kevin Lamalva from SGH, thank you so much for spending some time with us on the Civil Engineering Podcast, taking your time out of the conference. This is an important topic that the industry needs to know about it, and I appreciate you sharing it with them. Appreciate the opportunity. Next up, we're going to be speaking to Matthew Picardle, who is a structural engineer and project manager at DCI Engineers out in Irvine, California. Matthew is also the co-host of our new podcast, The Structural Engineering Channel Podcast. I mentioned him earlier on in the episode, how he approached me for some coaching in his career, which led to him getting involved in ASCE and getting really facilitating us meeting at the Congress, which helped us to start the podcast. Matthew's project portfolio includes the design of podium, commercial, office, retail, mixed-use, hospitality, residential, religious, and K-12 through projects. His knowledge of wood, concrete, steel, and preferred construction techniques allows him to help clients meet their objectives by providing solutions that are efficient, practical, and profitable. He also has a YouTube channel that he started called Structural Engineer Life, through which he helps young structural engineering students or just young students learn about structural engineering, which he talks a little bit about in the interview. So let's jump in. All right, now I'm excited to welcome Matthew Picardell from DCI Engineers out of Irvine, the Irvine, California office, onto the Civil Engineering Podcast. Matthew, welcome. Oh, it's good to be here, Anthony. So once again, we're here at the SCI Structures Congress, ASCE, and excited to meet Matthew. Him and I have gotten to talk a little bit in the past. I did a little coaching with him. Matthew, why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of a snapshot of your career. Where are you at in your career right now, just so they have a feel for that? Sure. So for me, I've been in the structural engineering industry. This is about my fourth year right now, and I just transitioned into management. So going from project engineer to project manager, uh, that's kind of what phase I'm at right now. Okay. The big uh, engineer to manager transition, which we, we talk a lot about here on the podcast. And so I know from you know, our work together not long ago, you weren't involved with ASCE. And which is why I was kind of really surprised to see you at the ASCE Structures Congress here. <laughs> so tell us about that, about, you know, getting involved in ASCE and how it's helped you in your career. Yeah, sure. So for me, you know, before our calls, I didn't really see too much value in going to, to ASCE and, and getting involved. But, you know, after our calls, I joined one. I joined my young professional uh, YMF group in, uh, in the Orange County area and uh, really got inspired by them and seeing what their skills are. And so for me, how it's helped me is, I think the big thing is how they communicate with each other and how they, they treat each other and the importance of communication. And because um, I think that going into project management, that's really helped me out, kind of just seeing how giving back and how contributing to organizations right. um, and volunteering, how it's really helped me grow as a person and figuring out what I like and what I'm good at and what I can improve at in terms of uh, communication skills and um, so for me, it, it's really helped me to basically become more personable, uh, improve my public speaking, improve my um, reaching out to professionals and improving my network, really just reaching out to some uh, successful people and just right. asking them out for lunch. Getting access to people. I mean, yeah, exactly. I think what you're saying is important because what you hear Matthew saying is that it's not only impacted some of your skill sets, but it's impacted you personally. 
-hmm. right? Your exactly. way that you connect with people, you're seeing how leadership, a leadership board or committee communicates with one another, and you're able to transfer that back to the job. That's something as a manager in engineering that's very important is your ability to work with people. And so to be able to access it through an association is great. The other thing that I wanted to talk to Matthew about and why I wanted to have him on this episode was because I know there are a lot of younger engineers out there that they're, if you ask them about joining an association, their response is, I'm too busy, which I'm sure maybe were some of your thoughts before you did it. But it sounds to me like it's worth the time invested. Yeah, and I think you get what you put into it. I mean, for me, I got involved in organizing one event, so I committed that time. And when I committed to it, you know, I committed to it. It's I block it out on my calendar, right. our scheduling meetings, and I pretty much just integrate it into my work schedule. So you probably don't have time, but if you make time, you can probably squeeze in an hour or two, maybe each week, depending on on what you're doing. And at least for me, it was kind of, uh, you know, I didn't go sign up for a secretary or anything or a board position. It was just, hey, let me get involved and let me just take on this small task that I can be responsible for. Right. And that way it's not, you know, going all in and putting endless hours in. Right, but at the same time, you gave yourself a little bit of accountability because you volunteered for something. So exactly. you had to show up and you yep. had to talk to people and you kind of forced yourself. And again, that's another very important point because I've always been told by people, to get the most out of associations, you need to get involved. Yes. Not just sign up as a member and pay your money online. You gotta go to something, you gotta get involved. And by doing that, what you forced yourself to do is get to meet people. You have to show up for these board meetings. You have to, you volunteer for something. And like, I know you're involved with this scholarship fund, right? Mm -hmm. That you're here for doing work with. That's kind of the message that I really wanted to have Matthew on for is because I know you're busy. I mean, everyone's busy. Yeah. Every every engineer right now, every civil engineering professional is busy. So you have to make a decision in where you're going to sacrifice time for what and what those rewards might be. And it sounds to me from talking with Matthew that there's professional also and personal rewards as far as relationships, et cetera, with being involved in an association. Would you agree with that? Yeah, exactly. I think even as an investment too, because right now early on in your career, yeah, it's very technical, but in order to get into the more of the management aspects and, you know, get promoted, uh, it really does take um, more of the personal skills, right. building the relationships. I was actually just at a session right now where we were talking to architects and owners, our clients. Wow. And they're pretty much resonating the same thing, you know. We're saying, hey, how can, how do we get uh, paid more? How do we differentiate ourselves? Right. Well, they're pretty much saying, hey, build a relationship with us. Right. And uh, it's kind of resonating throughout that, hey, I think as structural engineers, civil engineers, we do need to eventually learn that because that's what's going to help us in our careers that's later on. That's interesting, right from the client's mouth. Yeah. yeah, right from the client's mouth. No, that's good. And also, what I think another point about this, what Matthew's just told us here is he's four years, you said you're practicing for about four years, and yep. he's transitioning to manager. So, I mean, you know, maybe that's younger than a lot of people do, but nonetheless, you never know when you're going to need to add those personal people skills to your technical background, to your kind of technical briefcase. So my point is the earlier you can get these skills developed, the better. You know, ASC has YMFs across the country, which is a younger member forum or younger member group um, where you can get involved and get active right away. You even have student groups you could start in school. So really don't delay the process. Start to get involved with people, start to build relationships, start to build your people skills. And thankfully, you know, ASCE and SEI with this Congress have also created a place to come and network. So Matthew Picardell, thank you for taking some time to join us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Sure. Thanks for having me. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're going to take a break from the interviews now, and I'm going to let you hear a short excerpt from my 
talk on communication, effective communication skills for engineering professionals at the conference. And I'm specifically in this excerpt going to talk about responsiveness, which is really important in today's world. But it's one of those things where if you're too responsive, are you able to be productive? So I get into that a little bit. And I want to, again, thank you to CSI for sponsoring my talk at the conference. It was very appreciated that. And they're they're sponsoring our new podcast, the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, which is at structuralengineeringchannel.com. I also want to just recognize our sponsor for this episode, Mazer Consulting. This is kind of a special sponsor for me because I spent my entire engineering career working at Mazer Consulting. Mazer maintains a culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy comfortable work environments, continuous career advancement, and the ability to impact society, not only through the projects they work on, but the company-sponsored activities available to them. Mazer Consulting is on the cutting edge of technology and their opportunistic approach to expansion creates personal and professional growth opportunities across all areas of the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. One current exciting opportunity available at Mazer Consulting is a traffic engineering project manager position in New Jersey or Philadelphia to oversee projects in the public and private sectors of varying size and complexity throughout the Northeast region. To learn more about this opportunity and others, visit Mazer at www.mazerconsulting.com and find out why Mazer Consulting is consistently named a best place to work. And be sure to tell them that you found them through the Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, so here's the excerpt from my talk at the Structures Congress. All right, so next, let's talk about responsiveness. Responsiveness is obviously important. In today's world, everybody wants answers yesterday, right? With like this text message, social media, everything is so instant. And you can think about how people are going to feel if you don't respond to them by thinking about how you feel if someone doesn't respond to you, right? You know, sometimes we'll like text someone or send someone a message and be like, man, why is it taking this person three minutes to get back to me? This is nuts. <laughs> what I can tell you, though, about this is what I've learned through kind of my engineering project work and just, you know, working with people is the main thing is people just want to know that you've heard them. So sometimes you can respond and you don't have to necessarily have all the answers right away. So just to give you kind of like a little bit of a story, let's say that client calls me. I miss the call. They leave a message, voicemail. Anthony, how you doing? We worked on this project with you a couple of years ago. That project got stopped, but we want to reinitiate the project again. We just want you to pull out some of the project files um, so that we can get it going again. So I can do one of two things. I can kind of say, all right, listen, it's going to take me two days to get the files out. I'll pull everything out, and then I'll get back to them. Or I can call them back right away and say, listen, I got your message. It's going to give me a couple of days to pull everything together, and then I'll reach out to you, and we can meet. So I would always opt for the latter, right? Get right back to them right away and kind of let them know that I've heard them, I know what they need, and I'll get it together. And for me, that was always a really successful strategy because, again, if you put yourself in the other person's position, I mean, if I take a day or even like, you know, eight hours to look for all the information and call them back, they're sitting there or they may be thinking like, man, how come he's not getting back to me? And especially if it's like a client, you know, you want to have that response in this level. So I think it's important because responsiveness does have a big impact on our reputation, in fact, the company I used to work for, a lot of clients would come to us and say, we're hiring you because we're kind of sick of our engineer. It just takes too long for him or her to get back to us. And we heard that you're really responsive, your company. So it does really impact your reputation, and you can get back to them immediately with or without an answer. And this is also important for younger engineers to learn and your team to learn, because where you could go really wrong with this, too, is if you're on a project site and someone says, hey, listen, you know, we don't have the right material, but we have this substitute 
We really need to know if we can use it. You know, the projects, you got all, you know, you got laborers standing around these people, contractors, and they're looking for you to tell them like yes or no right away. And that's dangerous because what if it's not the right material and what if something happens and something happens on the project? So you need to be able to say, listen, I know that this is really important to you, but at the same time, it's really important to the project, the success and like the safety of citizens. And so I need to contact my office. We need to maybe run a calculation and I'll, I'll get back to you later today. Right. And so this whole response in this thing is something that you should have conversations with your team about because you can be responsive without necessarily having the answer immediately and still make that person at least happy in that moment until you get back to them. But I do know that what our, the CEO of the company I used to work for used to tell us that if you don't respond in a timely manner, then next time they're probably not going to call you. All right. So that was just a little kind of teaser from my talk there. Responsiveness is important. I think we've talked about that before in the podcast and I hope you can put some of that to use in your career. All right. Now back to the interviews. Next up is Alexis Clark, who was previously on the Civil Engineering Podcast back on episode 82, where she talked about her passion for culture and community in civil engineering. She works for Hilti North America. She has a newer position, which she talks about during the interview. But really what's important about it is that she works with a lot of structural engineers. And one of the running themes of this episode was to kind of get a little bit of a heartbeat on the structural engineering industry between this episode and the sister episode, episode number two of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, which we're going to link to in the show notes for here. So Alexis is great. She's a friend of the podcast. She's been really great in helping us, even connecting us with other people. And so here she is. Welcome back on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be back. This episode, we're, it's kind of a little bit about the state of the structural engineering industry, because mm -hmm. obviously we're here at the Structures Congress. And so take us through your job a little bit. So you obviously speak with these engineers, you maybe help them with specifying certain things on their projects. And then do you go to sites as well sometimes? So I used to. So I actually have gotten a, a new role since we last spoke. Okay. Uh, when we spoke last year, I was the field engineer for Fort Worth and West Texas. And I was one-to-one -one facing and a consultant for structural design engineers. I now work out of Hilti North America's uh, headquarters in Plano, Texas as the structural engineering trade manager, which is a big fancy title that yeah. means if Hilti creates something that gets to a structural engineer, it goes through my hands. So whether wow. it's design software, uh, new anchoring products, uh, new, new fasteners of any type, what else? Uh, educational content that we create is all developed through me as well. Okay. So wow. I have a much broader understanding of what not only the U.S. but Canada need as far as the different structural engineers in those areas. Sure. And it's so interesting because, of course, you've got such different requirements when it comes to code in different uh, geographies and the education that they're looking for reflects some of the changes that are happening in industry and it's so different for every region. That's exciting. So you really get to see different aspects of structural engineering in different locations. Absolutely. Because it's not just what you're doing is not just Texas related. Correct. Correct. It's North America. Yeah. So one thing I find really interesting um, is that in Texas, it's not seismic isn't really a big deal for us. Um, and for the most part, MEP connections specifically are kind of a big topic right now in the realm of, of fastening. Sure. So we're actually seeing a big trend. It's a really mature understanding, and particularly the U.S. and Canada have very knowledgeable structural engineers who understand structural connections. They understand an epoxy versus a screw anchor versus an expansion anchor and the different loads that impact that. But there's a really big stir right now around the conversation of non-structural components. So whether that's bracing for overhead um, right. mechanical equipment, overhead uh, structures, and uh, different like sprinkler systems. And so the, the MEP world is actually kind of this, I want to say, underdeveloped industry for fastenings. Right. And we're seeing a lot of change and a lot of people all trying to understand, you know, what are the best practices? 
how do we develop code, how do we develop testing standards to where we ensure things are going to work like they're supposed to. It's very interesting. Wow, yeah, it is an interesting, you know, it seems like you're kind of in a crossroads where you get a lot of different things from different places, which is interesting. And mm -hmm. I guess one of the questions I have for you is a lot of our listeners are civil engineers, but not maybe structural. Yes. So, but they, I'm sure, often work with structural and mm -hmm. projects that are integrated with different areas. Mm -hmm. So what would you offer to them, being that they don't know a lot about the structural engineering industry or working with structural engineers? Yeah. You know, what insights could you give them in terms of working with structural engineers, you know, like in terms of like specs or projects or the way they work or whatever thoughts you have on that would be helpful for the listeners? Yes. So I think in general, there's another industry trend right now where scope needs to be a little bit more clearly defined okay. between structural, civil, MEP engineers, because I'm getting actually more feedback from civil engineers who have specific connections on their job sites and they're not used to having to design these these out. And so they're looking for easy solutions to implement. Um, or they're trying to figure out, you know, is there a structural engineer I, I should delegate this design to? And similarly with those non-structural components, we have a lot of structural engineers who say, well, it's not really a structural component. And we have mechanical and electrical engineers who say, I mean, it's, it's holding something mm, up. That's interesting. So we're seeing a lot of uh, gray lines, a lot of blurred lines between where different people scope and between these components. And that would be something I think all engineers could benefit from is really understanding whose responsibility is for those kind of in-between gray areas Right, of the so project. being really clear on the scope and the roles and responsibilities of the different parties. Absolutely. Whether it's civil, structural, MEP. Mm -hmm. all. all right, that's great. Well, again, Alexis Clark from Healthy North America, thank you so much for spending a few more minutes with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. Always, always a pleasure. All right, so that was Alexis Clark. Alexis is great, and she's always has a lot of information to share, which is why I, I love getting her on the podcast when we can. Right now, next is our last interview that we're going to feature here today. Last but certainly not least, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Elena Sutley about community resilience and not just instructional engineering in all aspects of engineering. Dr. Sutley is an assistant professor in structural engineering at the University of Kansas. She's a researcher in the NIST-funded Center for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning, where she leads the field study and housing recovery modeling efforts. She was recently awarded four National Science Foundation projects to investigate damage after Hurricane Michael, study earthquake resilience in Nepal, assess local hazard mitigation and recovery planning, and a prestigious career award on convergence research for community disaster resilience. She's the chair of the Structural Engineering Institute Design of Wood Structures Committee, the balloteer for the ASC 7 Windload Subcommittee, and the chair of the NSF Natural Hazard Engineering Research Infrastructure User Forum as well as being an active member on other SEI and ASCE committees. And she was great. It's, it's always interesting to talk to a civil engineering professional that went into education. I always think it's interesting because I didn't, so it's a different perspective, and I don't get to talk to people with that perspective all that often. She will talk about community resilience in, this was a rather long interview, so we put the second half of it on the sister episode, which is episode two of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast that you can find at structuralengineeringchannel.com. But in this first portion, she talks mostly about community resilience, as mentioned. In the second portion, she gets a little bit into some softwares for community resilience, but also her experience as a professor. And also on the second part of the episode, which is on the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, she talks about the importance of whether or not you should get a master's degree as a structural engineer, which is a pretty interesting topic. Let's jump right in here with Dr. Elena Sutley. Okay, let me see if I can come up with the short version of that. <laughs> I went to school because I wanted to be a lawyer. 
and transferred into civil engineering to get me an edge going into law school and then just fell in love with my structural analysis course. An opportunity presented itself for me to work on nanocomposites and concrete materials for my master's degree and so I, I followed that path and while I was there I had the opportunity to be a graduate teaching assistant and that was a really cool experience to be on that side of the classroom and see how people learn. Um, and so then that in largely inspired me to get my PhD. And But then when I met my PhD advisor, he was also doing really cool research. And so I just had to be able to work with him. He um, had this NSF project called Nicewood, where they actually tested a full-scale six-story wood building on the shake table in Japan. Wow. So I had never been exposed to that side of structural engineering as an undergraduate. That's the fast version of how I got to where I am. And so along the in my PhD, got into community resilience and found a good home there. So tell us about community resilience. What does that mean? What is mm -hmm. that all about for our listeners that aren't familiar with the term? Yeah, so I think the big thing is, you know, we can't prevent hazards. We can't prevent the wind from blowing. We can't prevent earthquakes from happening. But we can do a lot to prevent hazards from becoming disasters. Right, and so that's what community disaster resilience is focused at, and it's also um, what I think is is it's more important than ever for structural engineers today um, to be working with these other disciplines and to really be thinking, understanding, and considering how the buildings that we design, the structures that we design impact society and how they fit in with communities. And so that's another big part hmm. of community disaster resilience is not just thinking about a single building in isolation, but how it's supporting the people in the community around it. So is this something that is a part of the design process? Hopefully, I would guess, right? Especially for newer buildings, right? You have a component of the design process where you would evaluate it for community disaster resilience. Is that I would say community disaster resilience is in its infancy or really a lot in the research stages. There's definitely a design component to it and that really fits in well with performance-based design because right. there you're not just designing to provide occupant safety, but you're designing it to prevent damage because that's what we see, especially with the wind hazards, is that it's our building, it's our cladding systems that are failing. That's not a structural problem, but it is causing billions of dollars in disaster losses and completely disrupting societies and displacing many millions of people every single year. And so that is a large premise of what performance-based design is and performance-based retrofit as well. And so I think that that's a major way that it fits into community disaster resilience, but there's also some big players like NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who've developed, um, what, what they've done is developed this six-step process that's a community resilience planning guide. And so they're actually working with communities to get them to adopt the guide. And so then in that case, you bring together all the stakeholders, including engineers, including the city planners, including people associated with the different utilities and lifeline networks, and get them all working together to form a resilient community instead of each of these types of civil infrastructure systems working in isolation. Right, so it's kind of about collaboration. Big part of collaboration. Yeah, which is interesting because that's, you know, something that's also been a little bit of a theme of some of my conversations here at the conference oh, with people is, sure. you know, collaboration and working together. And so just for the listeners, do you have an example of let's say community resilience or a project example or something you did or that you worked on just to kind of give them 
framework or something that they can Sure. I've got a lot of stuff going on right now or that just got funded. And so I can tell you what those projects plan to do. And they're all in that space of community resilience. But I'll fall back on the one that I've been working on for a few years now that is, again, the, the NIST work. Sure. And so it's not the Community Resilience Planning Guide. It's a research project. It's the uh, Center of Excellence for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning. It's a team of about 100 people, including about 36 professors, many students and postdocs, and an external assessment panel of mostly practitioners, as well as NIST personnel, NIST researchers who work with us. And it spans disciplines, um, structural engineering, computer science, economists, urban planners, and sociologists are all working on the project together. It's a five-year project. We're in year five right now, and it's renewable for five more years. So we're crossing our fingers that mm. we get to continue on for another five years. And so what I do for that project um, is two things, but I lead the field study effort. And we use field studies in that project to validate our numerical models. The ultimate goal of that project is to develop a web-based application called NCORE for researchers and hopefully communities to use to, to assess the resilience of their community using a dashboard of different measures that, that would tell them how resilient their community is. And it has um, different types of policy and mitigation levers, a decision algorithm to help them actually explore and uh, those different types of mitigation to see how their resilience changes. So then the field studies are intended to validate many of those algorithms that are being developed. And so one of the field studies we have going on right now is Lumberton in North Carolina. Lumberton was impacted by Hurricane Matthew in 2016. Lumberton is a small city of about 21,000 people. It's inland North Carolina. It's not on the coast. And they actually were catastrophically flooded by the storm because they had a big hole in their levee that was known many years ago. It was known that that was a vulnerability, but they didn't really have the tax base or the history of flood events to warrant fixing it, right? Uh And so this is where we get into resilience. So then after the 2016 flood from Hurricane Matthew, there were enough federal grants and other grants coming through to install a floodgate. But that money got tied up in legislation. They still haven't gotten it. And they were catastrophically flooded in 2018 by Hurricane Florence again. So now this poor city that had no history of flooding has been catastrophically flooded twice in two years. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode today that featured these interviews and excerpt from my talk at the ASCE SCI Structures Congress. It was a good experience. I really enjoyed the Congress. There was a lot of energy there. Anytime you have a niche like structural engineering and so many people from that niche in one location, there tends to be a lot of energy. So before we wrap this one up, I do want to once again thank our sponsor for this episode, PPI. Advancing in your career starts with getting your civil engineering license. Studying for your FE civil, PE civil, or SE exam can be daunting. So why not partner with a company who's helped over 4 million engineers, including me, pass their licensure exam and become leaders in their fields, PPI. Not only does PPI offer books and digital subscriptions to help you prepare, it also offers some of the best prep courses in the market today. Whether you are studying for the FE Civil, PE Civil, or SE exam, PPI has a discipline-specific course just for you. 
PPI prep courses provide you with NCSS approved exam materials, access to instructors during class time, office hours, exam day tips, and a passing guarantee. Right now, PPI is enrolling students for their next round of courses. They are starting soon, so be sure to enroll today and take an important step in your career. If you prefer self-study over a course, you can save 15% on PPI's print books and digital subscriptions when you use code EMI15 at checkout. Please note that the code is not valid on courses or bundles of products, as these already have a 15-30% to discount built in. To find the exam materials that work for you, visit ppi2pass.com and get started with your studies today. That's PPI, the number two, P-A-S-S.com. Be ambitious, go prepared, get licensed. So with that, we're going to wrap this episode up. I had a blast. Thanks to ASCE for having me there. Thanks to CSI for sponsoring us to be there. Thanks for Matthew Picardle for agreeing to host the Structural Engineering Channel podcast, which is now live at structuralengineeringchannel.com. If you ever have guests or topic ideas for that one, please send it our way by simply emailing me at afasano at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. And the show notes for this specific episode are located at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 120. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. 